within the four walls of Teleview, there's no mistake and there's no problem. You find something that's even questionable, just put it aside, we'll deal with it later. There's a mistake and a problem if that ends up in the customer's hand and then we get a phone call. Then we have, then we have to resolve that. I like pretty pictures too, but I like pretty views. And so when we can make that view as pretty and as natural as I think it should be, then you know, that's what we want our products to deliver. Telescopes come and go. You can keep that eyepiece for years and years, regardless of what telescope you have. David Nagler, president of Teleview, is back on our podcast talking with me and Dustin. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. All right, David, welcome. Welcome back to OPT. It uh, has been a year. Thank you, Dustin. Yes, it's been a little has over a year, a year since my last. Wow, yeah. we've been doing this for a while now. We're getting, yeah, we're getting yeah. swing I had such a good time. It took me a whole year to get back. <laughs> you avoided it as long <laughs> as you could. dragged me out to the West Coast. It was like, <laughs> ah. Kept ducking yeah. out on us. Things are so much better there in New York. You guys get, you know, rain and snow. And They're expecting like tarot. feet of snow. Right. Tomorrow. So and what is it outside? Yeah, Sunny and sixty something. Yeah, is that, yeah, it's not bad. Shorts, you're in a short sleeve <laughs> t shirt right now. Um, yeah, you should go back to New York and hide out for another year. Look, well, you know what? I would come back here more often, but every time I do, you drag me onto these podcasts. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you stay away. Yeah. Hey, I love to see but he's gonna time, he's gonna man. put a mic in my face and then I'm gonna have yeah. to call. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you did. You pried me with uh, some scotch, but the problem is we're both sick. So I know. We can't even I know. take advantage of it. I was looking forward to it, too. I brought yeah. the good stuff in, man. I got that Galileo Ardbeg sitting yeah. here, and we're not even going to get to try it because both, we both have a cold. Why waste it? We never taste it. Exactly. But we do have the opportunity to now to have a competition of who can hack up more <laughs> in one podcast. I got a bigger nose, so I think I'm, I think the money's on me. <laughs> is, that, is that what sets it apart? Okay. <laughs> it's always exciting to have you come out. I mean, you're you're the president of Teleview. I don't know uh, a company in the industry that you have an unmatched reputation. I appreciate you, that. You Thank do, you. and for very good reason. And so when we get you here, yeah, it is my job to make sure you sit down behind the mic and you talk to everybody because you got a you got a lot of fans. Not just the company, but you know you have you, the great family name. I mean, everybody in the industry knows the name Nagler. Well, I appreciate that. And, you know, we work hard to keep it that way. You know, we keep trying to come up with some new ideas, new products. Uh, and each one just has to has to fulfill what what we feel its proper role as a Teleview product is. So, you know, people will call, they'll ask, what's your best eyepiece? And there's no such thing as a best Teleview eyepiece. You know, they were all designed for a specific reason. We make sure that their performance lives up to what we feel it should be. Mm -hmm. and, and you definitely do that. Touring your facility was amazing. I know we covered that in our first podcast. So anyone listening to this, there is a whole nother podcast we did last year, kind of going over Teleview, what it is and um, what really sets you apart. We talked about the quality control, which is amazing to say the least. I mean, just the boxes of even rejects is what really stands out in my mind where, you know, it, you and, and your father, Al, you just see something that has a hair on it. It's like, yep, that's not going to customers, you know? And, and I love that because that's, that's what your promise is, but actually delivering on it, even when there's an expense attached to it, is something most companies would not do. Well, I personally like when I buy something to have a good initial experience with it. And that's what we want our customers to have. And the way we can best ensure that is to simply look at everything. And all of our people know it. I probably said it in the last podcast, but um, it bears uh, repeating that within the four walls of Teleview, 
there's no mistake and there's no problem. You find something that's even questionable, just put it aside, we'll deal with it later. There's a mistake and a problem if that ends up in the customer's hand and then we get a phone call. Then we have, then we have to resolve that, that problem. Um, but thankfully, it's very few and far between those phone calls and we get a lot of happy customers calling back. Well, you guys have been doing it a while, 40 years plus, 43, right? right? Something right. like that? So Televue uh, founded in 1977 by my father. His first products were projection TV lenses for taking a small 13-inch um, uh, television set and projecting the image onto a larger onto a large screen. Uh, so that's how the <clears throat> company started. And he always knew he wanted to get into something to do with telescopes. So that's why I named the company Teleview because it was sort of television, telescopes, and, you know, that kind of worked out for him. And um, he uh, designed his first eyepiece in 1979. Was that the Nagler or was that just a Plossel? Or it what? wasn't. Yeah, it was the Nagler. The original 13 millimeter Nagler was his first design, but he... Um, he he didn't want to introduce that initially because it's an unknown company yeah. producing this really unheard of type of eyepiece right, that was going to no sell reputation. Yeah, it was going to sell for five times more than a typical <laughs> eyepiece at the time. Yeah. You know, it had scam written all over. <laughs> right. You know, it's perfect. Yeah. So he 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 <clears throat> knew that he could do. He had clave plossels at the time, which were okay. really the top of top of the line uh, plossel eyepieces from France. And um, he, th he knew he could design an eyepiece that would actually have better edge correction than that Plossel. And that was the first series of Plossels uh, introduced 40 years ago this year. We just blogged that out. We've had, we have a couple of anniversaries going on this year of products. And I think we just posted a blog at Teleview.com uh, related to those anniversaries. So it was 40 years for the original series of Plossels. We're going on 40 years of the original series of Naglers. The last, oh, back to the Plossels. The Plossels were um, revamped, and uh, that was 25 years ago that we revamped the focal lengths on the Plossels. So mm -hmm. they were introduced 40 years ago. Yeah. And 25 years ago. <laughs> right. Yeah. You do have a lot of, um, we have a lot of new stuff, but one of the things that I think is uh, really right now probably the most exciting, and I probably shouldn't say this because immediately after this, Tony's going to call him back, dude, I want one of those. Send me that. Um, but <laughs> but um, this right here, we've got it in front of us, this um, Apollo 11 commemorative um, eyepiece. And it's an 11 millimeter eyepiece, but do you want to talk about, I mean, there's such a story behind this thing and it coming into existence. I feel like it, it's really fascinating that the idea that you guys only made, you made a brand new product. You didn't just like, you know, paint something or relabel something. That's right. That was important to them. Yeah. So why don't you, why don't you tell us about this thing? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple of different, you know, storylines about the Apollo 11. Uh, it is to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the landing of men on the moon um, my father was part of that program having designed the optical systems for the simulators that the astronauts used to train yeah, to it, go to the moon it helped in making him a legend for sure well it, it you, you know you never know what you're going to be part of of life in life. And he was at the right place at the right time. And he gives a talk uh, called I Thank My Lucky Stars. And it's his, from him growing up in the Bronx as a kid interested in amateur astronomy through his involvement uh, with, the, with NASA and the Apollo uh, project. He also did the Gemini simulators as well. Um, <clears throat> and then on to uh, founding Teleview. And, you know, we've had a 40-plus year pretty good run at, at Teleview's, you know, and making a successful business. So he's had quite the breadth of experience. And um, the Apollo 11 eyepiece, it wasn't his idea to come up with that, actually. 
Um, it's an eyepiece that we had been sort of playing with uh, a new design, an extended Nagler type, if you will. Uh, Nagler is being 82 degrees of apparent field. Uh, we wanted to do something um, maybe uh, with a little longer eye relief than our Type 6s. Our Type 6s have uh, 12 millimeters of eye relief, and they range in focal length from 3.5 up to 13 millimeters of focal length. So we were looking. So why at, was that important to you? Why was the eye relief something that you were considering on this? Well, without a doubt, our Delight eyepieces and Delos eyepieces with 20 millimeters of eye relief have been nice successes. Okay. And we're really seeing that people want the longer eye relief. Uh, whether just for you glasses, know, it's just, that... yeah, whether it's just for glasses, but we have the adjustable height eye guard, which does a great job of blocking out extraneous light. So if you're not wearing glasses, you're kind of far away from the eye lens and you can have, you know, light from the surround, from your surrounding bounce off the eye lens and artificially diminish the contrast in the image. Never thought about that. Oh, it's a yeah, big, it's, big difference. Why do yeah. you think uh, uh, the photographers with view cameras put hoods over there, you know, mm -hmm. over their heads when they're looking at the, uh, at the, at that plate, at that screen. I do that even when I'm just taking like a selfie <laughs> with my iPhone. Yeah, I, I do. We don't know. Over there. Yeah, we don't want to know what you're yeah. doing under there. <laughs> so um, yeah, I never but, thought about that, but it makes sense. You've got a curved element here at the top, and then if you're going to let light yeah, come in, yeah, and it's and it's concave, right? So any light yep. that's coming in, it's acting like a little mirror, right? Right. Yeah, that's, that's a problem. Bouncing light up. Yep. <clears throat> To your eye. So, yeah. So if you're not wearing eyeglasses, you can adjust the height of the eye guard so that it just cups your eye and you block out all that extraneous light. I always just use it as like the reference where, you know, if you get right up to that, then, you know, you're going to be go. in focus. Um, right. I never thought about it as actually, you know, aiding in contrast in the image or, or just in the view. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. That makes sense. So you've got... Um, yeah. So we were fooling around uh, with his eyepiece uh, design, um, you know, thinking about what we might do. But, you know, to get longer eye relief, eyepiece has to be much bigger, uh, heavier. And our Type 6s are a nice compact size, great for binocular viewing as well, because they're, they're so little, uh, but still with that 82 degree field. <clears throat> anyway, so this was probably summer of uh, 2018. And um, as it became late summer, you know, the, I don't know, there was more buzz about this 50th anniversary of the moon landing. I'm like, well, what, you know, maybe we should do something. <laughs> it's what a bit could, buzzworthy, yeah, I'd yeah. say. You know, people stood on <laughs> a, another planet floating around out there, you know? It's like, yeah, I mean, the, it's crazy to think that somebody's, I mean, that people have stood on the moon, right? Like, it, it's almost, it's right on the edge of being comprehensible. It's it's what? so amazing. Oh, uh, when I watched that CNN special on the... Uh, on the moon landing. Yeah. Now you just get chills. Uh, yeah, time. I can't even talk about it without getting chills. Yeah, every time I think about that, you know, that actual footage that was spliced together and all of, you think about as this is happening, all the crosstalk and behind the scenes, guys, communications to make that, <clears throat> to make that landing happen is just incredible. These people all, hundreds of thousands of people knew their jobs yeah. and what needed to get done, watching every little bit of that. Yeah. It's just mind-blowing. So um, to get more pedestrian and introducing a commemorative product, um, <clears throat> you know, we thought, well, maybe we should do something, you know, to in honor of my father's um, contribution, small as it may have been. Um, it was such a pivotal part in his life that he goes around giving this talk you know, where uh, his involvement in that program is a major part of that talk. Um, and as you say, we, we don't believe in just, you know, a special engraving or making a special color right. or doing something to an existing product and call it commemorative, you know, like putting stickers on a car and saying it's a limited It would have been edition. a lot easier. It would have been a lot easier, that's for sure. <laughs> so this eyepiece actually was originally a... Uh, 12 millimeter while we were 
fooling around with it. And uh, I said, I said to um, our designer, Paul Delakai, I said, look, it's late in the summer. If we really want to have this out and we pick the um, Neef, which is, a, you know, our big once a year, big show, home show in Rockland uh, County, New York. Um, and it's usually where we introduce, you know, new products. Uh, if we wanted to have it there, we really had to get on the ball. <clears throat> well, uh, you know, I gave him a sort of a deadline date when the design had to be done so that we could get prototypes by Neef. And as it happened, the prototypes landed the Monday of Neef week in April of 2019. So, I mean, we were really down right to, the to the wire. wire. Yeah, on wow. That, on that but one. As you went to the right man. I mean, Paul was uh, responsible for the design of even the ethos IPs, correct? correct? So, yeah. I mean, it was nothing new to him to come up with something that was going to be. No, but, it, you know, it always presents challenges and, and, you know, some foreseen, some unforeseen. So every design presents its own little little challenge and it's not something you just whip out. Uh, some people are under the very, very false notion that with the uh, computer aided design, you could just hit a button and the computer will spit out a design for you. Mm -hmm. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Yeah. And I, and I don't know, I'm not an optical engineer, you know, I don't know the process that goes into it, but I would have assumed that the majority of the legwork was done with software. Um, and so oh, it is, Oh, it is. Oh, absolutely. But if you don't know what you want and you don't have an idea of how to get it, that computer is as dumb as a rock. Yeah. Yeah. This is amazing stuff. And I know when, uh, Tony, when you were here, we uh, we took out, so I've got a set of your uh, ethos eyepieces. You know, it's actually interesting. I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but my first communication with Teleview, which was actually one of the first companies I ever talked to when I first started getting into astronomy. A lot of firsts there, <laughs> right? Um, and you're I, just an amateur. You weren't in the business. Oh, right? yeah. I was, in, I was in Tennessee. I was leaving the gym. And while I was at the gym, I was just going through the forums and I saw everybody just kept saying this name. And to me, Teleview meant nothing. I, I didn't know. I'd never heard it. I didn't. I had just got my first scope off Craigslist. And it wasn't even for me. It was for my business partner, Jenny. And I was trying to really like get something that I felt like, all right, this is going to be really good. If we have this big Dobsonian, we need something good. And everybody just kept saying the name Teleview. So I called and I was amazed that, you know, especially the way everybody's talking about Teleview first, that somebody picked up and was answering all these questions to an absolute newbie. I mean, I could, I, looking back on it now, the questions I was asking were embarrassing. You know, I had no idea what we I was even that. talking about. Oh, we definitely laughed at you after. Yeah, Chicago. for sure. I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> I was looking for lenses, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I was looking for all my lenses and trying to find something because I just, I wanted her to have an enjoyable experience. And everybody was just saying, look, if you want the best, if you want the best, get Teleview. All I saw was like, all right, well. These are, I was expecting an eyepiece to be something in the range of, you know, $20. And I started looking at him. It's like, okay, well, this is very different than what I thought. But, and they're big. These eyepieces are huge, you know? And I, I didn't understand what all of that was, but I trusted that everybody else did. And so I got walked through uh, with one of your team. I don't even remember who now. And ended up with one of your eyepieces. And I was blown away at the difference of the eyepieces that came with the telescope compared to this Teleview, this green eyepiece mm -hmm. that I had. And I was just like, wow, is it such a big difference? You know, how, like, what went into this? Because there can't be that much. There's no electronics in this thing. Like, how is it so incredibly different? And so it's interesting in talking about, you know, the manufacturing process and what goes into designing one that there can be when you're just talking about a few elements aligned in a certain order to produce a certain focal length, that there can be such a night and day difference in image quality at the end, you know? Yeah. Well, first of all, <clears throat> all joking aside, we absolutely love talking to our customers, whether it really is your first time picking up the phone, talking about a telescope or you're, you know, a seasoned observer. Uh, <clears throat> we just, 
my father is going to be 85 years old this year. He still comes to work. And the reason he, the main reason he comes to work is he likes talking to customers on the telephone. Yeah, Al's the best, man. He just instantly connected with Al the first time we met. He's the best. Yeah, he's a warm guy. Yeah, he is. Um, So, yeah, so we, we love talking to customers. We love walking them through the process because really if the more the customer understands about the choices that go into and selecting an eyepiece, sure. the more successful that choice will be. In other words, they will the eyepiece will fulfill the role that they want it to fulfill. Rather than, you know, somebody just saying, Well, I'm I'm gonna take a this focal length, that focal length, and just, you know, a smattering of, right, of everything. Right. You you just don't need it. But you need wisely selected eyepieces to fill um, the range of your observing interests. Right. Yeah. And it definitely does that. Tony and I were just here. Uh, you were visiting. How long ago was that, Tony? A month or two? It was, I believe it was when, October. Um, I was out oh, okay. there. Okay. So a yeah. little, little yeah. while ago. I lose track of time. Man. I have no idea <laughs> oh, when anything easy happened. Right. Um, and we were looking through a 20 inch daub and we had um, one of your ethos eyepieces looking at Saturn. And it was probably the best view of Saturn I've ever seen. Just huge. But, um, yeah, I've got a, a whole set of those ethoses at the house that I, they keep for that 20-inch top, just for that. Well, on that kind of, that <clears throat> aperture scope, they're ideal eyepieces. Is it driven or undriven? It's driven. Okay. Yeah, it's driven, and it uh, it's it's one of those things where you can't, you you know, you really don't even want to look at the moon because it just produces a laser out oh, the yeah, back of the eyepiece yeah. and burns your eye out. But, uh, no, it's, it's fun, man. And I, I know we want to talk a little bit about just the state of visual astronomy and I don't know anybody you sell to imagers and you sell to visual observers and so you're really well positioned to kind of talk about the state of things and what you're seeing what you think might be coming and just where like is visual astronomy something that you see growing is it something that you think imaging is cutting into or are they just separate uh, it's a hard question for me to answer only because when People call, they, they have their own interests, and it's, it's usually a general interest so that, yes, they want to do visual and they may do some imaging. Um, then we have uh, our imaging system telescopes, of course, and there we, we get imagers call all the time um, asking about those scopes, and they'll just do imaging. And, and to me... To me, it's kind of a waste. While you're letting the data record, why not be looking through another telescope? You're out there anyway. And if you're, I don't know, I, I'm, I, I like being outside with the equipment as part of the experience. To me, that's what observing is, is for me. Right. Um, you know, it's not, it's different for, for everybody. But, you know, uh, recording data on a computer while I'm watching TV, to me, isn't practicing Sure. Amateur astronomy. So, you know, I think it's a mix, um, and I don't, I don't see that um, that visual is declining greatly due to imaging. But imaging certainly is incredibly popular because nothing, nothing keeps an, an imager from observing with an eyepiece. It's just their interest. Yeah, but uh, are are you worried at all about the the state of our night skies in terms of being able to oh, do yes. visual astronomy? I mean, one of the things that really worries me, and I'm starting to uh, think about this more and more. I'm a visual astronomer first and foremost. I love eyepieces. I love sitting behind a telescope and and looking through them with my eye. But I worry that with the degrading nature of our night skies in general due to light pollution, that at some point there's no way you're going to be able to make a, a, a wide field eyepiece uh, that is able to actually be able to see anything uh, behind this very bright sky background. This is where imaging really does come into play. You, you're, you can take longer exposures, you can add filters, all kinds of things that, that you can't. But with your eyepieces, which are you know, outstanding you know, as they are, they amplify or they enhance your own eyeball, which has inherent limitations under light pollution. So do you worry at all about the hobby of visual 
of uh, astronomy through an eyepiece due to light pollution? Well, I, I do for two different reasons. Just in general, light pollution destroys the majesty and the wonder of the sky. When you walk out of your house under a light polluted sky, you look up and you see a few stars, what's there really to get excited about? But if you're traveling across the country in the middle of the West where there's nothing around, you almost drive off the road because the sky is so incredible. You can't help but look up. And so I worry about astronomy in general as a hobby because of light pollution and people losing that, you know, wow factor. Um, now for visual astronomy, I mean, we, we've sort of discovered maybe a bit of an antidote to light pollution, and that is with uh, night vision monoculars. And we have a setup where we can attach a night vision monocular to our eyepiece, and it amplifies the light that's coming in. It busts through that light pollution like you wouldn't believe. Our little three-inch telescope now is like a 10-inch telescope. It's incredible. I would love to so, try something like that. So this is using night vision, light amplification technology uh, to just correct. enhance what photons are there. Well, yeah, exactly. But wouldn't and that so, also enhance the background noise? Of, no, it actually punches through. It punches right through it and amplifies. How the, does it punch um, through? It only looks the, at a certain the wavelength? existing light. Well, it is uh, um, more sensitive to the red, yes, which is another neat feature is that you can put a hydrogen alpha filter on it. And when you use these uh, just handheld, you know, 1X, one, one uh, you, you see 40 degrees of the sky and you see all of these stars and deep sky objects that are invisible to the naked eye. But now you're seeing them and you're seeing them in this context of a 40 degree field, which you can't get in a telescope. No telescope's going to show you a 40 degree true field. So <laughs> so you can look up at Orion. You can see all of Barnard's loop around there and the Orion Nebula. And it's incredible. It's absolutely mind blowing. Um, when you see Andromeda and you see how much of the actual sky that galaxy takes up. It's, it's mind-blowing. Yeah. It's mind-blowing. Right. You're like, oh, my God. You know, you, yeah. think that you think the moon is the largest object in the sky. No way. Yeah, not even close. Not, not even close, right. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you can conceptualize that, let's say Andromeda is like three degrees or something like that, three or plus degrees. <clears throat> and you know the moon is half a degree to your eye. So, you know, okay, Andromeda is much larger than the moon. You need six moons to go across the field of Andromeda. But when you see it, it's just absolutely mind mind Yeah, it's one thing to know it academically. It's another thing to experience it. Yeah, yeah. And so so the night vision monoculars, they're expensive, okay? But a 20-inch telescope is pretty expensive. You're going to spend as much money on a large aperture telescope that is... You have to collimate. You have to be able to store it. You have to be able to move it around. It's just a big, unwieldy thing. Here you got this night vision monocular you can use on a small telescope and make it act like a big telescope. And um, I, w- I will say, you know, there, there are downsides to everything. The techno- particular uh, technology I'm talking about is a white phosphor because uh, it used to be night vision. You'd see everything in this emerald green and, you know, that is not too aesthetically pleasing to see, you know, stars is, you know, all emerald green. But now it it appears much more black and white with this white phosphoric technology. So... um, What about the resolution? The resolution used to be really grainy in those old night vision green goggles. Yeah, so... So, you know, you still have the scintillation, but the unit that uh, that we have, the uh, PVS-14, has adjustable gain. So you actually can... You can tweak it one, right. one direction or the other. That's right. You can have ultimate sensitivity where you'll see more scintillation, or you can darken it and eliminate the scintillation, and, uh, you know, it, you'll still see uh, way deeper, you know, than you would with without it. 
Um, well, I would love to see something like I'd like to try one of those out. That sounds like an amazing. How long have yeah, you had it's this? How long have you had one of these? Uh, um, well, we started. Uh, the PVS 14 is not our product. It's uh, made by a company called Tactical Night Vision, TNVC. And uh, so we started selling their unit with our adapters about a year or so ago. Okay, um, so it's pretty new. And yeah, and and they go on the IPs. Now, amateur astronomers have been using night vision uh, for quite a while, but with our particular unit, the nice thing about it is it's a plug and play solution. Right. Uh, you can use it standalone or you can attach it to our eyepieces. And by using different eyepieces, you're getting different magnifications. So you can change the magnification. It was fun standalone. You and I did that in the parking lot <clears throat> oh, yeah, here yeah, at OPT. Yeah. It was fun just scanning the sky and seeing nebulae. Yeah. Um, but, to, you know, to as I was started to say before, you know, there's a downside to everything and the star images themselves are not quite as pinpoint as looking through one of our refractors visually. Um, and you don't see colors of stars, right? So you look at something like the double cluster while you're going to see many, many more stars in each of the component of the, of the cluster. Um, you won't see the gold and the blues and Mm -hmm. the red stars that, you know, really, set it off and make it that beautiful that's really visually i think especially with clusters that is what makes them attractive is like all of those colors you know the the mind-blowing part is seeing how much is actually there that's the part that's just <laughs> yeah <laughs> how is this in existence well and you know what it used to take a larger and larger aperture right. telescope and yeah. you know it's aperture fever um, but now with this night vision, you can extend the range of a small telescope far beyond, you know, what, what one ever would have expected. Mm-hmm. That's a really big change in the hobby that I've noticed as well is, is since I've gotten reintroduced to a lot of this equipment, that aperture fever seems to be not as big a thing as it was, say, 20 years ago. I think technology and electronics have really improved to the point where you can really do a lot of really cool stuff with uh, 100, 200 millimeters of aperture. And before, you know, you were looking at 20, 20 inch Dobsonian would be the minimum for a lot of deep sky stuff. So I've noticed that the aperture seems to have become less of a, of a characteristic that's important in a telescope these days with the improvement in electronics and, and eyepieces as well. You know, you, you talked about, well, you, you made a quick comment earlier when you were talking about this Apollo 11 eyepiece we got sitting next to me here. And you said, you know, it's strange because you never know where you're going to end up or how you get involved with certain things. And, you know, obviously Al had no idea what he was ultimately going to be a part of that was so successful. And quite possibly the greatest human achievement of all time. Um, And, you know, Teleview obviously has done uh, uh, wonders for the hobby. I mean, all of the the modern eyepiece designs have come pretty much out of your location there in New York, and a lot of innovation has happened there. This is something we talk a lot about on this podcast, probably more than anything else, is really the philosophy and what drives people and um, really what it is to be part of something like that, what it is to really, you know, be involved in, in something that can be life-changing. I mean, you, you stepped in, your father was already involved. And so it was for you, the family business, but clearly it's a huge part of your life. I mean, astronomy in general and just optics. Yeah, it always, you know, it always has been. My father was, when I was a little kid, you know, he, where was he at night? He was out, yep. you know, observing <laughs> through his telescopes. I go yeah. tugging on a pant leg and, yeah. hey, let me look kind of thing. And, you know, that's just the way I grew up. And and that was before there was the business. <clears throat> there are tons of, of stories to talk about yeah. prior, you know, astronomicals amateur astronomy stories to talk about prior to there being uh, Teleview. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I joined the company in 1988. So going on, uh, this would be my uh, 32nd year uh, at Teleview. And um, and I didn't start my career actually as Teleview. I, I didn't plan on, on working at Teleview. I was actually in... Uh, wanted to be a cinematographer and I was going along that path. 
But as I was going along that path and my father's company was growing, my father had another company at the time, which, which he worked full time. Okay. And my mother was taking care of Teleview. And we had a couple of employees, including one Paul Delakai. Yeah. You know, he's, he's been at Teleview 35 years wow. or so. You know, as the company was growing and he, there were more issues to deal with overseas, um, I was, when I wasn't working in the film industry, I was making money at Teleview doing quality control and whatnot. And I saw what was going on and kept abreast of the business. And at one point, it just was pretty obvious to me that it would be a nice leap to go from what I was doing into Teleview and, you know, help grow that company and deal with some of the issues that my father was dealing with because he wasn't there full time. But I knew, you know, I knew enough that I could handle, sure. you know, those, those kind of things. So I started with him full time in 88. And the company was, I think it was four employees at the time. And it was, you know, three lines of eyepieces. And uh, I think we were doing one, only the Renaissance telescope at that time. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's grown tremendously and it's been fun to watch and it's been a, it's been a fun ride. Yeah, it's it's amazing what's been done there. Do you um, do you experience that that philosophical perspective? Like, is that what draws you to astronomy, or you're an optics guy? Is it really like more the science and the pushing optics forward? What is it that keeps you in this? So, and maybe this is why I'm more interested in in visual. I don't know if the you know challenging my own visual um, perception. I like pretty pictures too but I like pretty views. And so when we can make that view as pretty and as natural as I think it should be, then, you know, that's what we want our products to deliver. Of course, you have price constraints and then, you know, they're, they're all constraints put on, on a product and it's how you define that product conceptually, right? And then bring it to fruition that is going to determine its success, personal success. You know, did I make this product what I wanted it to be? And I think, um, you know, my father set on the path originally to <clears throat> make products um, that are high quality, uh, both in performance and in um, manufacture. And we've never strayed from that. And we never will stray from that. Do you think it's a big difference um, in experience doing visual and photography? Yeah, it's huge. You do like so uh, you're and, seeing, and you know uh, what? It's it it it's changed so much from when it was film photography. Sure, and, yeah. And you know, I was really into film. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you I, and Tony both. I don't know why, uh, but uh, you know, as I really got out of photography as a hobby when DSLRs came out. I, I, there's something about loading the film, winding the film, you know, it's just the mechanical aspect of it. Um, uh, developing my own negatives and printing the pictures and all the nasty chemicals and all that. But, you know, it was a heck of an involvement, you know, there. And I just don't get that reward in... Watching an image show up yeah, on a computer image. screen or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and then clicking away on a typewriter to bring out a typewriter. The image. Well, a typewriter. <laughs> I mean, a computer. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. So it was just, I was like, damn, you and Tony are doing the same image. Yeah, no wonder my images don't come out. Is that what I'm Man, doing? I wrong? just my age. a typewriter. One of them newfangled things, you know. Yeah. And all you youngsters are using yeah, it. I think for image processing, my typewriter doesn't do very good either. It's. I don't know. I don't. I, I do both. You know, I have a 20-inch dob at the house on wheels. I just roll it out and look around. And then I run imaging scopes. If it's clear, they're running all the time. I, I absolutely love that. But watching the image come through on the computer screen doesn't make me feel disconnected from it. And I've heard other like visual people say that it does. It feels like you're not quite as connected or involved. I feel like the process of setting up an imaging system and the process of going through 
all of that to get that image is a tremendous involvement. It is a tremendous involvement and could be a tremendously frustrating involvement too to, <laughs> yeah. to get a good result. That's true. Uh, where if you just kind of, you know, and then it could be said it's tremendously frustrating to maybe try to find an object visually, right? So each has its <clears throat> has its challenges and its rewards. Yeah, I, I do not use a computer-aided telescope. I have a star chart. Really? I star hop everywhere. You, you, you still do that. It's to me, that's the fun. It's a treasure hunt, you know? And, and when I find an object, I'm rewarded. When you crank up your car in the front, <laughs> like <laughs> when you get out and crank the crank. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, yeah, I guess I just, that, that does not appeal to me at all. Like star hopping across the sky to, to find the things. And I, I've heard a lot of people, they get very, I've even seen people get upset online. You better not get a go-to system as your first scope. Right, you yeah, have right. got to learn the sky. Yeah. And I just, I never stood, understood the appeal there. I think that's an older argument, but I don't hear that <clears throat> as much. But but I... Well, that's I, because I think that it's, it's also uh, not true. I mean, if you have a go-to telescope and you're, you're typing in Ring Nebula, Andromeda Galaxy, Double Cluster in Person, whatever it is you're typing in, Eventually, if you're if you're passionate about what you're doing, you're going to learn where these things are uh, just by doing it, is, it over yeah. and over. So it's not really true anymore mm -hmm. that a go-to telescope keeps you from learning the sky. It just helps. Well, what a it lot does. of the go-to telescopes, you learn more because, like, like look at Mead's Audio Star. You know, that's right. It'll go to an object and then start telling you all about it. You're learning <laughs> it'll more narrate about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. Or even the Stellina. I mean, it as it goes to it, starts sending you pictures to your phone. It tells you what you're looking at. It tells you how far away it is and what it is and what it's doing. All of that stuff. It's like having a little astrophysicist in your pocket. Well, I, I think what all of this discussion lays out there is the different ways you can be involved with amateur astronomy and at different levels and whatever Whatever floats your boat, man. So many different ways to enjoy it. And that's something that I love about it is that, you know, it really does draw in the best people from around the world. Globally, you always find the best people in this industry. Everyone I meet is like, I, I want to talk to that person. The person's awesome, you know. And um, I love that. And so I'm, I'm setting up actually this week. Uh, we're finalizing my talk schedule for the year. And... I just, I told everybody this year, I was like, look, I'm going to come, I'm going to do the talks. But this year, I'm only going to talk about the human connection to these things. It's only going to be philosophy talks. I'm not talking about specs. I'm not talking about equipment. I'm not talking about that stuff. It is going to be the human connection. Because I think that that is the piece that unifies. That's the thing that transcends borders. It transcends race. It transcends everything. You know, even like political agendas, it doesn't like none of that matters when you're looking out at things that are so much bigger than all of that. And I, I think there needs to be more discussion about that. I think that that's a part of the hobby that is so immensely valuable and offers this unique perspective about we as hobbyists, as professionals, as all of these things share this one very common uh, question about meaning and this question about, you know, what it is we're actually experiencing, which is, is this human experience? Is this piece of human experience, is it better explored as the infinite or the infinitesimal, right? Like, are is this as big as things get or is this here to, as a lot of people feel and kind of embrace, it's like it makes you feel so incredibly it's small, small yeah. smaller than anything, you know? And I think... That challenge can be unifying across all people. Everyone I meet from around the world, they all say the same thing. It's like, no matter what it is you're describing in space, it's just spectacular and immense, right? And I think whether it's visual or, or imaging, you're going to experience it that way. And it's going to be overwhelming either way. It's absolutely beautiful. We all have that wonder about it. And so it, you're right, it, it is unifying. And you can see that in your uh, online observing sessions that you do and how many people you attract do, doing that. Now, okay, yeah, people are seeing it on a screen. Great. 
but at least they're involved. They wouldn't otherwise be involved. I mean, it would be great if we had that many people interested in amateur astronomy and actually going out and practicing it. You know, maybe we could do a whole lot more in this industry and with our technology if there was just, if we had a bigger population, you know, if telescopes were as popular as cell phones, there'd be a whole lot more uh, investment put into, you know, developing products for it. Um, I'm not saying that we're lagging behind in technology or, but we're doing what we can, but it's such a limited market with limited interest that there really is at some point only so much you can do. Well, I agree. And that's why, you know, our mission for the last several years has been making telescopes accessible with cell phones is exactly that. It's just we can't always ask people to meet us in the middle of the desert, you know, out in the middle of nowhere on the night that doesn't have clouds and the moon is gone and everything perfectly aligns. We can't always ask people to do that. Sometimes we just got to say, if you don't have anything to do for the next 15 minutes, log into Instagram and watch this live. You know, that's a hell of a lot easier, less commitment and still a way to explore the universe together and get at least a portion, a, a substantial portion of that experience. Well, you know, one thing that's amazing to me, and I, I just, I find this to be a disconnect. The RV industry is huge. Uh, I've talked to friends who go camping all the time. They say it's harder and harder to get a, a spot. You you have to make reservations well, well in advance. Well, with all these people camping, and you know they're in beautiful locations, dark skies, and whatever. Nobody really camps in a city. Uh, you know, how come every RV doesn't have a telescope, you know? I don't know. I, I wondered that for a while. You know, I lived in an RV for three years. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I did. I'm, I'm a minimalist. Pretty oh, all right. <laughs> pretty hardcore. Yeah. I, I didn't I, want to go down that avenue too far. Yeah, yeah. I, um, I had, uh, you know, this big house and just all this stuff in Tennessee. And finally, I was just like, man, I've got all of these things in my life that just don't feel like they're earning their place there. I want to get rid of everything. And I did. And I lived in an RV for three years while running this company. It was only recently that I bought another house, mainly because I have dogs. And it was just like, they're like, they're looking at me like, uh, dad, we kind of don't want to live in the RV anymore. <laughs> yeah, this you know? RV is too- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, we like you and everything, but this is kind of a cramped space, yeah. especially with all these telescopes everywhere. So, um, but anyway, uh, but I really, how many, that. yeah. So nobody so had one. If you go around campgrounds, nobody had one. Yeah. Who has telescopes? Though? So when I would set them up outside, everybody coming, running over, like, that's such a great idea, but nobody had one and it's the perfect environment for it. So, you know, they all started getting them. By seeing it, they're like, oh, we're going to all the dark skies. We might as well have this. And um, and they started doing that. But, yeah, it is surprising that people that are set up exactly perfectly for it aren't using it more. Well, it, it, we just chime in with a quick story then because it's very relevant to what you just mentioned, David. So one of the gigs I just got here in Central Florida, this is our big time of year when all the snowbirds come down to escape all the cold up, up north. Uh, just as an idea, I, I went to a state park here, and uh, some of them have little amphitheaters, but many of them have campgrounds. And I and I offered the ranger there. I said, "Can I do a quick star party?" And I didn't. All I had was a laser pointer, and I just started pointing out constellations. And now, what they want me to do is come back and do a regular event each during the week with a telescope or whatever. And so, I think that that is a great. It's a. It's a for, for deep astronomy and for me it was a it was an opportunity but for companies like Teleview and OPT it's also an opportunity to get into that market because there is a huge interest I was you know I'm there's just a lot of people you know they're ready to ask questions many of them have been wondering about this stuff all their lives and so I think once you get them more comfortable yeah, with the idea of the night sky and what a telescope can and can't do I think you might be able to sell a lot more to people with RVs or even to RV companies uh, because they'll feel more comfortable with the subject matter and the, the, the equipment. You just have to, they just have to be exposed to it. They maybe haven't thought about it or if they had thought about it, maybe became intimidated by the learning curve that it would take to use, to use them. So um, there's definitely a, a market there, I think for sure uh, for anybody who's entrepreneurial enough to 
want to look into it uh, for this exact market because you're right in the fact that it's they're built in. <laughs> they're, they're going to the places where the night skies are still halfway decent. And so a telescope right. would serve them quite well. Yeah, so so why 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 didn't they make that connection? You know, okay, you're right. It, it's an opportunity for us for OPT and Teleview that you know we can try to make that connection for them. But but how come they didn't come to that themselves? You know, they're out there for that specific reason. I don't think people know. Um, I don't think people know what's possible. You know, we get the same reaction from people when we go to dark skies. We do star parties out in Joshua Tree and people look through the telescope and they see Jupiter or Saturn or Andromeda or whatever. People look at that and they, they look at you and they're speechless for a second and it's the same thing every time. People are just like, holy shit. Yeah. Is that real? How, how is that real? Yeah. And then they look in the front of the telescope. Tony and I went to uh, Times Square uh, last year and we set up telescopes in Times Square and we got exactly the same reaction, even from the most light polluted skies in the world. Although we were there to do imaging, we also had some visual scopes set up because you're in Times Square. Why not? Yeah. Right. And, um, you know, while the police originally did not like it, the people walking by did. And they give you the same reaction. They look at something and it's just like, holy shit, I can't believe this stuff is there. And I don't like I don't know this is possible for me to do on my own. And so I don't think it's a lack of interest. I think it's just a lack of understanding that this is even something you can do. Right. And it's also, I think, a little intimidating. You think about, well, I could never do that. I think there might be a little of that as well. Um, but if, you know, that could be overcome with just some, some uh, exposure, I think. But uh, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's not only not having thought about it, but it's also... You know, I don't know how to use a telescope. I'm not, you know, I don't know what to buy. I don't even know what, you know, what's a good one. And immediately you're starting to think, oh, you have all these questions that uh, can be pretty daunting. They sure can. And uh, th that is a big turnoff to a lot of people starting yeah. out. I mean, thankfully, we get, especially around the holiday time, we get a lot of people who don't know Teleview. They call, they want to buy a telescope. They have no idea what our price point is or anything like that. But it's it's fun to talk to these people. I know they're not going to buy my product, but but the fact that they're interested in telescopes and I'll tell them to go to OPT, you know, and 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 browse what's there in their budget. And I, I say, but the most important thing is that, <clears throat> that the the best telescope is the one that you're going to use because you could buy quote unquote the best telescope whatever that may be but you could buy the best telescope and if you're not using it it's really not a good telescope so um, get out there and observe and often I actually dissuade people from starting with telescopes and I say good good pair of binoculars See, what you need are ambassadors to do that right you need somebody out there and where the people are where these meet them where they are and. Tell them these things, show them these things and, and break down the barriers uh, to open up the dialogue and then, and then they'll have a ton of questions and you could answer them there on the spot. So it's one way, it's just another way of getting a connection made. Yeah, I think there are a few organizations out there that are trying, trying to do that. Um, you know, that was the IDA's mission in setting up these uh, dark side, sky um, uh, preserve spots preserving spots um i forgot what they called them but they're they're not necessarily the in the darkest parts of the country but it's the darkest areas of a particular region right. you know near a city or whatever i think they they uh they rate them like <clears throat> silver gold like different mm -hmm. there's a rating system yeah. too for how dark the sky is there but it's hard especially out there where you guys are anything east of the mississippi river is just tough to find a dark site yeah, you're always dodging clouds, it's even in the best of times. I want to go back to something you said earlier in the podcast, because you reminded me of something. You and I seem like we've been around about the same amount of time and, and seen a lot of the same stuff. And when you mentioned clave, plossels, early in the podcast, just wave of memories came back to me about how good those eyepieces were. And, and they were, at the time, I think, one of the best you could get. Whatever happened to that company do you know is is are they are they still around or no i don't I, I don't believe they're around anymore i think they 
went out of business and then came back into business for a short while, but I, I really don't <clears throat> don't know the history. Okay, because that was uh, just a one of those nostalgic moments when I heard about <laughs> Clave Plus. It was one of the names yeah. that you learned early on back in that time. So my next question is on on eyepieces, and obviously you guys make some of the best in the world. Is there a optimum match between a Teleview eyepiece of any line or series with a particular telescope, or can you just use any eyepiece with any telescope? And I, I say that because um, I had a comment once from someone who was using a lower end uh, sub five hundred dollar telescope, and they asked me if they should bother, you know, getting one of the more expensive eyepieces. And I actually didn't know what to how to answer that because the eyepiece would have been more than they would have spent on the telescope itself. What advice do you have uh, for people in that situation with, with, with maybe they don't, they, they have a beginner scope or they got a scope for a gift, but they really want to try a Teleview eyepiece that may even cost more than the scope they have. Do they match well, or is it important to match the Teleview eyepiece series with a particular kind of telescope? It's a pretty simple answer in that, in the observing train from the objective, whether it's a mirror or a lens, from, from that to your eye, including your eye, the image is only going to be as good as the weakest component in there. Um, <clears throat> there is no reason, there is no technical reason that you couldn't use a 100-degree ethos eyepiece in an inexpensive refractor. Are you going to see a great image? You're only going to see the best image that that objective can can give you, okay? You'll still see the 100 degrees of the ethos field of view, which is wow, okay? But will you be getting what you paid for in that eyepiece? No, because you're not feeding it a good input, right? But so there's no technical reason that you can't use an expensive eyepiece on an inexpensive telescope and and get some semblance of what advantage of what you know that eyepiece can do. It's similar to what <clears throat> Dustin had said about the difference when he got a Nagler eyepiece and compared it with the inexpensive eyepieces that came with his first telescope. Wow, he saw a big difference. Yes, you're going to see a difference, a big difference in it because presumably an inexpensive telescope comes with really inexpensive eyepieces. Will they work? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they'll work. But if you're asking me, can, can you recommend one? Sure. If they're willing to spend the money, they're going to get the, they're going to see absolutely the best of what that telescope can deliver and you'll still get the benefit of the 100 degrees of field of view and the, you know, the long eye relief, et cetera, you know, the characteristics of the, of the eyepiece. But the real key is to tell them that telescopes come and go. You can keep that eyepiece for years and years, regardless of what telescope you have, except for the case where you buy a really short focal length eyepiece and it produces too much power in your C8. You know, you can use the eyepiece for the rest of your life, regardless of what telescope, you know, you, you use it on. So it's a, it could literally be a one-time purchase where that telescope ends up being money wasted because uh, you're just going to get rid of it anyway and buy a, a better telescope. So regardless of the telescope you have, these eyepieces will bring out the best that that telescope can do. Whatever it, it is. Yeah, they can only yeah, they can only show you the best that's delivered to it. So in fact, that was that's that's an argument I make uh when Newtonian owners are resistant to purchasing a paracore because they don't want to add additional elements and blah blah blah. I said, but you've already bought our eyepieces that are perfectly sharp to the edge. You've wasted your money because you're not seeing all the sharpness that that eyepiece can deliver. The only way you're going to see it is by correcting your Newtonian reflector with a paracore, getting rid of the coma that's inherent from that parabolic-shaped mirror. 
So you're now feeding the eyepiece a well-corrected field and the eyepiece is well-corrected. So boom, you have sharp stars right across the field. And, and, and I challenge people, I say, when you get the paracore, you could do a with and without comparison. Take a globular cluster, put your eyepiece in, and put it in the center of the field and focus it. Let it drift across the field. And as it drifts across the field, when do you start noticing that, oh, maybe it's not as crisp? You know, maybe I'm not seeing as many stars as I did. You know, at what point in the field do, do you start getting that feeling? Then put the paracore in and do the same thing, and you'll see it's just as sharp at the extreme edge as it was in the center. And, you know, that now you're... Now you're getting the benefit of what you paid for in those eyepieces. All right. Well, I want to thank our guest, David Nagler. He's the president of Teleview and one of the premier eyepiece and telescope manufacturers out there. Please check out their website. So on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I'm Tony Darnell. I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com. <laughs>